Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. See, I know, Mike, you're an old school rocker, so you'll know that that's as close as we can get to Guns N' Roses without getting a copyright infringement. That's what that's from. So, yeah, yeah. I I told the audio guy, I was like, I was like, I'm kind of a Guns N' Roses Pearl Jam guy. He's like, I got you. I got you, bro. We won't get a copyright infringement. So, uh, hey, I'm here with my buddy, Mike Velez, who we actually met sharing a cabin, which is kind of a weird thing to say as an adult. Uh, Jump straight into it. (laughs) Just stop right. Yeah. So, Mike and I, uh, we met at Jocko Willink's uh, Immersion Jiu-Jitsu Camp, which is eight days out in Maine. It's epic. If you do jujitsu, if you're interested in getting into jujitsu, it's probably the best twenty five hundred bucks, twenty two hundred bucks, or something like uh, that. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah, like the best twenty five hundred bucks I spent last year because it was three times a day jujitsu, great people, all kinds of great leaders, food, lodging, just find a way to get there by flight, and uh, we'll show up. So I, I showed up. I didn't know a single person who was going to be there. Uh, jumped in a cabin, and, and there you were, and we hit it off. Turns out you do real estate. I do mortgages. Um, and what was more interesting is as we started to talk throughout the week, started to learn all this interesting shit about you being a serial entrepreneur. You ran magazines and businesses and hobby shops, and of course, like everybody else, you were in mortgage prior to 2008. You've had your real estate license for 25 years, and now you're building that brokerage. Um, you got two awesome kids, one of which I got to meet because he was also doing jujitsu the whole week and just love that kid he was i I can't remember his name but we had a lot marcus thank you uh marcus shout out to you man like you were you were wise beyond your years for an 18 year old (laughs) at that camp and uh, i saw him sneaking over into the corner be like hey uh do you think i do you think i should smoke a cigar i'm like no your your mouth is gonna feel like a like you cat shit in it tomorrow so uh don't worry your dad and i will smoke the cigars you just hang there and have good conversation but he was he was a really good kid man i liked him a lot and i have yet to meet your daughter but i'm sure i'll meet the whole family here soon um so I, I think for the podcast, we're just going to label you serial entrepreneur. Is that fair? What did I, what did I miss sure. in the bio? Ser- better than serial. There's other worse serial things <laughs> I could be. Totally. Serial killer. I don't know. So so tell us about your journey. Like going through, uh, you, you had a soap business for like uh, jujitsu antibacterial. You had magazines. You had this. Like yeah. when does your entrepreneurial career start? It's like uh, ADHD where you can't keep focused on one thing. I get you. So let's see. If I trace all the way back, I'd have to say it was probably the fifth grade. And the fifth uh, grade. Yeah. I had some idea. I, my grandma gave me a cigar box, actually. Nice. And uh, I had the idea, well, you know what? I'm going to tape it. I'm going to see if this kid will pay me to take his trash from his desk to the, to the, uh, to the trash can. So he paid me. I can't imagine it was like 50 cents or a dollar. I taped the cigar box to his desk. Said, whenever you have trash, just put your trash in there, and I'll pick it up, and I'll... Wait, this is in school? There's, like, pencils, pencils, pencil shavings, and, like, Mr. post-its, or what? Mr. I, Ybarra Elementary and Mr. Shurik, and he was cool. He's like, yeah, go ahead. I don't care. So, I that was my first technical business, I guess. Was this, like, yeah. the rich kid in class, or, like, this kid... No, I don't know. I think there was more than one that did it, so I must have had a good pitch. So, nice. You know, they were too... Hey, you're too lazy to walk... 12 feet to the trash can, let Mike empty it for you. That's a funny story, man, because me, Andrew Medina, uh, Steve Tan, a couple other guys, we did the same thing. Like, we won all the candy at some, like, uh, auction that we had in sixth grade, and we're like, hey, man, what are we going to do with this $25? And we're like, all right, Andrew, on your way home, you buy a bunch of Jolly Ranchers at Smart and Final. We'll sell them tomorrow. And then we just repeated this for a bunch of days until all of a sudden the school caught on. Andrew had a couple hundred dollars in her pocket, in his pockets. All of us had uh, pockets full of Jolly Ranchers. <laughs> and then we got suspended for a day for selling candy because this is before every 
every school in LAUSD had candy everywhere. So we were ahead of our time. And that was also my first entrepreneurial journey. So we lived close to a golf course. And my friend Eric, he uh, his dad would buy beer by the case. And so he'd have like seven or eight cases of beer in, in his garage. And we got the bright idea to, well, let's sell his beer. So we would take a case of beer and sit I by I hope the, this wasn't in fifth grade. Sit, yeah, maybe fifth or sixth. But uh, we would sit by the where the golf the golfers had to cross the street and we would offer them ice cold beer and we'd sold them beer at, I don't know, 12 years old. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, they, the golfers loved it. We were probably selling it way too cheap, but, uh, it was a hundred percent profit for us. <laughs> yeah. And, when you uh, steal, when you steal the product, <laughs> the profit's amazing. So yeah, his dad, you know, he, if he had a few beers, maybe he didn't miss any cases, but, uh, yeah, so there was that. And then, um, sold baseball cards. I had a friend, um, his dad and, and him had a, a, a uh, card show. It's actually really famous back in LA. It's called Frankensons. And um, I would buy baseball cards from the neighborhood. Uh, we had a lady across the street. Her son had gone off to college and she had all these baseball cards. And, you know, she offered to, to you know, if I wanted them, I said, sure. So I bought them from her. Not by like 10 bucks, I think. But there was like Ricky Henderson rookies and all kinds of stuff, like from 78 to like 83. And uh, so I probably sold a few thousand dollars worth of cards for a hundred bucks, maybe back then looking back. But um, so, yeah, I would sell baseball cards. And then uh, my dad and I had a hobby shop in uh, Roland Heights. What's a hobby shop, by the way? You mentioned that before we started recording in like like Hobby Lobby where, you know, you buy uh, garland and stuff no, for your wreaths. Or? No, like there's a chain called Hobby, hobby Town USA. Okay. Something similar to that. So it was uh, we got into radio control cars when I was uh, fifth grade, sixth grade. That was Big year, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so fifth, sixth grade, 11 you years old. You peaked at fifth grade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so we got into radio control cars, and um, my dad, he worked for Mother's Cookies, and he'd drive a cookie truck and deliver, and I'd go work for him during the summers and stuff. And uh, my junior high school, we opened up a retail hobby shop down the street from our house next to a, a grocery store. And um, before that, we had uh, electric motor cleaner that we would sell. Like, we had a packaging company that uh, they would formulate it and we would sell that. So my dad had that kind of bug too, but he was uh, you know, blue collar guy, sold cookies. Um, but uh, we owned a hobby shop in those years and um, would s sell radio control cars, models, stuff like that. And then you remember the pog craze? Oh yeah. So pogs. I was trying to explain to my kids what pogs were the other day. And Chris, for people that don't know, you're going to have to like insert a video here of people putting the pogs in the slammer and trying to flip them over because it doesn't make any sense. I have no idea why they were popular. They caused so many fights at my junior high. I still have my whole collection just you, hoping they'd be worth something. You still have your not. pog collection? Yeah, I still have like a thousand pogs and like 20 slammers. Holy shit. I mean, I remember this was such a big deal at Roosevelt Junior High School in Glendale, California. They made a rule nobody could bring pogs to school because like Tommy Huang and a couple of these other guys, like we would just get in massive fights over pogs and they're just piece of shit, pieces of cardboard. like Pieces of paper and then we would, uh, so I would, I can't remember, this is going back, but we I would go somewhere and I would buy the blanks like Basically, somebody would get an aluminum bar and they would just slice it into, you know, slammers. And then I'd go to the, uh, there was a uh, burger place down the street that had a uh, coin-operated vending machine for stickers. And they had uh, Power Ranger stickers. So I'd put the Power Ranger stickers on the aluminum blanks. And uh, I would sell $1,000 worth of pogs a day to these kids, all cash. 
<laughs> so, Holy cow. I would come home and it was like like uh you know the counting when they're counting the money in in, in um Scarface? Yeah. This was like ones and fives and like a stack. She if anybody from the IRS, I reported it all. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, totally, totally reported it all. If and, the NSA is listening, it was all reported. Yeah. So I was like 18, 19, and I would come home with stacks. Five hundred a good day was a thousand bucks, like the most, but about five hundred a day. Like Holy shit. for there was a few months of this. Of course I was eighteen. Yeah. And so you bought a car stereo, yeah, and a like beeper. It just blew the money. We'd go to Vegas. Yeah. You know. Of course. Uh, all the time. And uh, if I didn't discover Vegas until I was like in my thirties and forties and had more self control, I would probably be retired. Cause like when you live in LA and Vegas is just four hours away and it's an easy weekend trip and you know, the thousand dollars here, the $300 there, the $500 here on either gambling or booze or girls or whatever, you know, in your twenties, you think about that. You're like compound interest over time. Oh, don't oh, oh yeah. I'd be, I'd be retired. I'd yeah, be retired. Don't think about it. Yeah, so, don't think about it. So my, she was my girlfriend at the time. She's now my wife. Uh, she was, she still is four years older than me. So I was 18. She was 22. So we would go to the casinos. She would sit down first at the tables. And uh, if they carded her, then we would, you know, she would split. But if they didn't card her, then I'd go ahead and sit down. And you know, I was 18. So we were playing blackjack and craps and all that stuff at 18 in the casinos with pog money. How, how long have you been married? Oh, geez. Man, you're going to get me in trouble. Uh... 26 years what's the secret man <laughs> it's been fun you know i love her uh i'm she loves me it's uh up and down marriage isn't easy yeah so. no 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 marriage is easy no relationship is easy but 26 years is 26 uh, you years. Know, we laugh at each other's jokes and uh our kids you know they're great they're awesome so it's uh it's not easy but it's fun what's yeah. the best thing you do with your kids looking back now that they're both adults oh man you know i worked a lot and so I definitely regret not spending more time with them when they were younger, especially now when you look at like pictures yeah, and, uh, or video, um, just anything like sports was pretty big. I mean, my son, um, he did everything like he did T-ball, he did, um, uh, roller hockey, uh, football. And it wasn't until like wrestling where he kind of excelled at that. And he didn't want to do it at all. Like he going into freshman year, I kind of I kind of forced him to do uh he's he's on the smaller side. Yeah. And you know, cuz at this point you're a black belt black belt in jiu-jitsu. So 5 years ago when he was a freshman in high school, you were already yeah. well deep into your jiu-jitsu journey and kind of yeah. knew wrestling would would probably be good for every man. Exactly, exactly. I and, wish and I, every woman. I like my daughter takes it more seriously than my son does. Yeah, I wish I did it when I was in high school and I didn't. Yeah. And um all my friends that were wrestlers, I had a, fr- a lot of friends that were wrestlers and they were all tough dudes, good guys, you know, like just legit folks. And um, so I kind of forced him to do a, I think it was like a two month or a month camp. Uh, it was, you know, drop him off, pick him up. It wasn't like anywhere far. And he did not want to do it. He was like crying about it. Like, I hate this. I'm never doing it. And I, it was the first time where I felt like kind of really bad for being super stern. And I told him, dude, you're going to do this. You're not going to quit. You're going to finish this. And if it, when you're done, if you want to quit or you don't want to do it again, no problem. At least right. you did it. But you're not, you're, you're going tomorrow and the next day. And um, about two weeks after that, he was like starting to get in the groove. And then his first day freshman year, he was like, oh, this is the greatest. He was kind of stressing about, you know, be going into high school. And when we were kids, we'd hear about, you know, 
freshman getting thrown in the dumpster and stuff. Right. And uh, so he came back from school the first day and he was like talking about how cool his, the wrestling team friends were. And so, and so he did wrestling throughout uh, high school and that was great. Uh, his senior year, he was like undefeated in league for his weight division and he was at a tournament and uh, the guy was on his back and he twisted a certain way. And with those wrestling shoes, man, they're planted. There's lots of traction there. And his ankle, uh, like, bro, it fractured his ankle, and it was a real bad, like, injury. Yeah. He almost needed surgery, but not quite. But that kind of ruined the rest of it. Like, he was, he was, you know, really shooken up and really broken up about it. Not because of the injury or, like, you know, that. Just that it was, he wasn't going to be able to be there for his team, and he would go to all the tournaments afterwards. So it really, like, aside from uh, the physical side of, you know, betterment, uh, it showed him like he's he was telling me the other day we we're on a walk and he's like you know what i really miss is the shared misery in the in the wrestling room how we all hated it and we didn't want to be there but we all did it together and like yeah you know he misses that and he wants to get in the military and i'm like well that seems like somewhere that there's some shared yeah <laughs> shared misery plenty of shared misery <laughs> <laughs> and you can pick your level of misery you know you can go all the way up to navy seal or marine or infantry in the army or something like that and be really miserable or you can like you know, pick a lower level of misery yeah. go into the air force and do logistics or something um so, so that's where he wants to go and my daughter she um she cheered so when he played football, she he went into football because she was cheerleading, and um, so we would spend time at the at the football field. You know, they would be practicing, and and she got really good into cheerleading. Like she was, she's small too, and so she was a flyer. The ones that they throw up in the air. So as a dad going to like high school football games, like watching your daughter get thrown up in the air and just like your heart stopping on the way down to make right. sure that please, she gets caught. Please catch her, please catch yeah, her. Yeah, that, that was really tough, but it was really good for her. And then when she went into college, she didn't want anything to do with cheerleading. So Fair. I was, like, disappointed at that, but at the same time, like, hey, that's her decision. Yeah. And, uh, you know. Cool, man. So so when you're younger, uh, yeah, that's the Tesla leaving, Chris. There's, like, a weird, there's a weird electronic humming in the background. That's the car pulling out. Just more proof that we do this in my garage. Um, so I, I, you got to, like, this greatest hits journey, right? Where you have the hobby shop, you start publishing uh, magazines on RC cars and and craft beer and RC helicopters, and then eventually jujitsu. Like, where where was your passion? What what happened? Like, tell us about the the entrepreneurial journey into magazines because that that seems interesting. And also, like, you caught the tail end of it before the mass magazine publishers mostly started to die, right? So, 95, I started my first magazine, and it was a radio control car magazine. I started it from the back room of the hobby shop. So, uh, we sold, um, there was a magazine that we were, there was two or three magazines that we sold at the store. What they, year was this, by the way? Uh, this was like 95. Yeah, because I remember in the 90s, so I would have been in high school, RC cars were up big deal oh, like yeah, the yeah. gas engine and the racing actually chris's brother spent all of his allowance for like two years and every gift putting together this rc and you know he'd want these 40 dollar tires that his mom would be like bro you're crazy like this is a this is a toy yeah it's crazy um, what you can spend yeah you know it's big boy toys so anyway so mid 90s you start this uh, uh rc car magazine yeah so i published the first issue and um sent it to just started calling hobby shops and mail it out to them. And about maybe six issues in, I talked to a newsstand publisher and uh, we got national distribution across the country and a few, probably about a year and a half after that, um, basically every major bookstore 
uh, grocery store chains. Uh, I went to Japan to um, cover an event, and I met wait, this. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> this is funny, because like we live in the world where like getting new you, new YouTube subscribers, you're like a couple at a time, a couple hundred at a time. You went from the back of the store by the six magazine to like a national publisher being like, yeah, I need 10,000 copies or what? Yeah. So the first, man, the numbers are going to throw me off. I think we printed like 5,000 copies out of the gate, but it was free. The first issue was free. Right. And, uh, advice of one of my advertisers, well, put a price tag on it. I'm like, okay, but we're going to give it away for free. And that model, you know, the free model wasn't the greatest. So (laughs) we started charging for it. And, uh, yeah, so there were different steps. So I think uh, I moved out of the hobby shop for a few years, or not a few years, a year maybe. Uh, rented some space for my father-in-law in Covina. And then um, got a place in Chino. I'm throwing all these addresses out there. But anyway, so uh, leased a bigger space just because I needed it. And my first hire was an art art director. So I was doing a lot of the stuff at the beginning. And uh, so my first hire was uh, this guy, Andy. And later on, he would get hired by Motor Trend from the work that he was doing for me. So really super talented guy. In fact, he's working on some layouts for my real estate stuff right now. but Or not right now, but today. Um, so super talented guy. And then uh, in 1999, I went to Japan to cover an event, and I ran into this guy, Derek Bono. Like an RC car event in Japan? Yeah, it was like a world championship. So it, this, <laughs> it, the RC business was huge uh, you know, at the time relative to everything else out there. And, um, so yeah, I met this guy, Derek and him and I hit it off really well. And he was working for a company out in Connecticut and, uh, I kind of bit the bullet and I offered him a higher salary, salary than he was getting paid. And, um, he accepted the offer and he moved out here and, uh, his girlfriend at the time worked at the same company and they found out that he got hired by me. And so they fired her. So he called me and he's like, Hey, do you need another graphic artist? I really didn't. But I'm like, okay, we'll make it happen. So he, they both came out, and uh, he allowed me to kind of work on the business where at the time I was kind of wearing every single hat. And um, so I got to work on the business, selling it, you know, working on the circulation, advertising. And um, I think we tripled, like, within the next year. And so, it, like, at the height of it, how many, how many circulars were going out? Like, how many copies of RC? What was it called, by the way? Extreme RC Cars. Extreme RC Cars. Yeah. So, at the height of it, how many extreme RCR, mm-hmm. R, extreme RC car copies are going out? So, to the, the, our peak year was probably 2007, and uh, we had three magazines. So, we had uh, Extreme RC, we had RC Heli, which is a radio control helicopter magazine, and then we had uh, Beer Magazine. And uh, Extreme, I think it was like 232 pages. And I want to say we were printing like 65,000 copies. Jesus. So it, was, it was a legit. I mean, the layout on 260 pages, even if half of it is ads that's pre-filled for you by the advertisers, it, that's a lot of work. So at the peak, we had, we had um, 16 employees. And I think we, did a, we were just about to do 3 million in sales that year. Wow. And... Um, we had three or four graphic artists. So I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm really picky. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I always wanted to look the best. And that was something that we always got compliments on and how good our magazines looked. And um, so at this point, you're like high on the hog. You're like, dude, I'm going to be the next Rupert Murdoch. Oh, it was I'm, awesome. I'm gonna- the magazine business back then, the internet was like, the internet was around, but it wasn't 
like if you wanted to sell these little RC cars, you had to be in the magazines. And there was four competing, believe it or not. There was uh, one out of uh, Connecticut, two out of Connecticut, one out of Santa Clarita, your area, and then us. And um, so it was a real competitive market, and everybody was, you know, battling for that dollar. And um, uh, then 2008 hit, October 2008. We were at a trade show. I remember we were in Chicago, and, like, the just it was when Lehman Brothers went out of business or whatever. And man, like I didn't realize the gravity of what had happened until I got back into the office the next week. And every time the phone rang, it was somebody cutting their contract. So I remember like uh, within a week, I think we lost about $600,000 in advertising that was was not going to be coming in. And, you know, and it's interesting because if you think about 2008, okay, it's a housing crisis. All right, I get it. That causes some trickle down and ripple effects into the securities market, into these investment bankers. But if I, I mean, I know why it happened, but thinking back, why does that affect whether or not somebody's going to buy a $300 RC car? Like, is it, is it just because it's a luxury item and people were racking them up on credit cards? Or like, are people fearful? Like, why does the housing market affect RC cars? It wasn't that... It wasn't that week. It was actually the month. And if you remember, the election was going on. So I think the media just really pushed that the end of the world was coming financially. And everybody thought, shoot, I better not spend this money. So advertisers, we had companies that were, you know, let's say they had six or seven pages of ads at 2000 a pop. And they decide they're going to scale back to a third of that or a quarter of that. So uh, every time the phone rang, I knew it was you know, money that was going to be gone. And, um, the crew, the people that I had working for me, they were really like family, you know? So, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to let anybody go. So I held on and thought, Oh, it's just temporary. You know, we'll get back. I'm a pretty positive thinking person. And, um, man, it was tough. It was tough. So like going into, you know, right now there's a lot of talk about a recession and, um, people that own businesses, I'm telling them, Hey, don't be afraid to, let people go, you know, yeah. it turns out to be the best thing for them. Cause then, you know, they don't have, they, they can go find something else. Yeah. They can be uh, the first one on the job market to find something yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the mistake I made back then was keeping people on too long. Yeah. And later on it would turn out I had to, uh, I had to close the whole business down. Did it bankrupt the business keeping people on too long? Oh uh, yeah, for sure. Oh, I took out so much debt. Like I think, uh, I had a second on my mortgage or a HELOC and, uh, Oh, just, Pull from that, you know, there's money there. And then all of a sudden that dried up. Like right. you had, I had an extra hundred grand that I could draw from. And then I get a letter that, oh no, you don't have that anymore. So it was I, tough. I will never forget. Um, and I'll just use his first name, Al. Um, Al came in and, and this is when I realized we had real problems. Uh, I was working at Washington Mutual. Uh, I had done, I had been slinging $250,000 line of credits like they were candy because everybody in Burbank saw the Burbank, California, saw these massive property appreciations. A lot of people had not gotten in the habit of using their house as an ATM. So my standard client like Al would have a, you know, a house that's now worth $600,000 in kind of the Rancho old horse district of Burbank by uh, where Disney Studios is now. He owed 110000 on it, and it was worth 600000 He might be doing some renovations or buying an investment property, so we could do like an easy qualifier $250,000 home equity line of credit just based on your equity. Tell me what your income is. As long as your credit score is over like 720, we'll just give you the line of credit. 
cool. I was slinging those like hotcakes. Like there was one month I think I did 11 million in line of credits and I thought I was rich because I was making like $90,000 a year or something. And um, he came in, like, hey, Scott, what's up, man? Da, da, da. And uh, he's like, I just got to, I got to take like a $75,000 advance on my line of credit because I'm buying an investment property. Seems like there's going to be some good deals in the market. Cool, man. Bring it up. Won't let me do the transaction. Bring it up. Won't let me do the transaction. And it turns out to your point, like somewhere in the covenants of page, you know, 13 of that line of credit agreement was that the bank could cut it off at any time, even though it was a 30 year term. So when he thought he had $250,000 of available credit, they dropped that home equity line of credit down to $2,000 above his outstanding balance. And now he had a $13,000 home equity line of credit. That's exactly what happened to me. And, and it, it wrecked him. I, and I, I remember like almost watching a grown man cry because he's like, I don't have the money to buy this property without this line of credit. And I've got $20,000 on a good faith deposit that's already been released. And I'm like, I, I, I didn't know what to say, yeah. man. I, I, it, was, it was brutal. Um, and then, of course, replicate that through the entire industry, and now you have a, a housing crash. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I don't think we're going to have that type of situation coming on, but we're definitely right. going to go into a leaner time where, you know, I think liquidity will be an issue. You know, yeah, you, you won't. Rates might not go, you know, sky high, but it's going to be harder to get people to lend you money. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at, um, you know, COVID gave us this weird blip where everybody had to stay home. So the national savings rate went through the roof. Like we had a positive national savings rate for the first time in a long time. 18 months later, that's all gone. It's all gone. <laughs> and credit card debt is the highest it's ever been. And student loan debt is the highest it's ever been. Luckily, there's plenty of mortgage equity, even though mortgage debt's the highest it's ever been. Chris, maybe you can look this up. You can look up like the um, total outstanding, I don't know, probably credit card debt would be the best indicator. Like where have we gone as like a national credit card debt society? Because that's the kind of stuff that scares me. Like I think rates are going to come back down, mortgage rates. I think there's going to be some housing out there. But at some point, the borrower has to qualify. And if the borrower's $30,000 in credit card debt and doesn't feel comfortable buying a house, then you don't have a buyer, which is scary. $925 billion at the end of Q3. $925 billion. What In relation, how much has that gone up over the last, you know, whatever, year, decade, whatnot? If you can find that stat, that'd be great. Yeah, so um, it was at uh, high 600s in... 2014 Q2. No, it's 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 gone up very steeply. Um, like a 20. Sorry, I'm looking at a graph. That's why yeah, I sound like, like a 30, moron right now. 30 percent. It was at like 750 billion in Q1 of this year, and now it's at 900 billion. Yeah, and I mean over I, 900. Overnight, so it's gone up over 25 percent in overall credit card debt in 12 months. And consumer rates have never been low, right? But now they're the highest they've been. When I got into mortgage business, I was refinancing people that had like 13, 14% mortgages. And right. I would I would sell them a seven and a half and they were like in love with that because they right. would, they'd save a couple grand a month. Right. And um, yeah, I was looking at just historically, like kind of where are we working? I mean, history always repeats itself. So like, where were we? And I was looking back to like 2002, 2001. And I think the Fed funds rate was around 5%, like right, right. around, or no, like three and a half, four percent, uh, but the ten year was like at five percent. Yeah, I'm trying to find like parallels now that I'm you know completely immersed in real estate. You know, I want to be as aware as I possibly can of right. what's going on and what's going to affect things, and um, I'm trying to find parallels. And it's really tough because we have so many like conflicting things going on right now. Like as far as house prices, you know, you have all these people that have three percent, three and a half percent mortgages, 
they're not going to give that. I mean, it's going to take a hell of a lot to for yeah, them to never give moving. that up. Or they're just going to find a they're going to find a tenant, you know. So th- so we're going to have this like low inventory, and right? Then which should kind of buoy prices because just like old supply and demand curve. Exactly, you've got inflation, which we didn't have, we haven't had like we've got now. Like I, you know, I'll do searches on you know what happened to housing prices in the eighties, and it you can't find a there's no perfect parallel that that I've seen. Right. Uh, just because you know everything costs more and our dollars are worth less, so like yeah, that's going to have an impact on housing. But if people are laying off, you know, if we have job layoffs or interest rates go up, like just immediately, I think it was back, uh, you know, March is when rates started like ticking up. And I was on some uh, Facebook group for real estate. Actually, we're in there, lab coat agents. Yeah. And I was telling people like, you know, don't be surprised if rates like go way up and things slow down. And, And the argument was, oh, well, inventory is really low. And it takes two. It takes demand and supply. So if demand falls out, <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah. what the supply is. Right. You know, prices are going to come down. And, and we've seen that. I don't think we're going to see like a major, major crash or anything like that. But we're definitely going to see continued downward pressure. Agreed. So. Yeah. I mean, because if you think about in like the areas that you and I have serviced, you know, take it from kind of East L.A. into the Nila, Northeast Los Angeles corridor of like all the cool areas, you know, Eagle Rock, uh, Echo Park, things like that. You know, a starter home now is a million dollars. Well, a starter home at a million dollars with 10% down, that mortgage looks wildly different at 3% versus 6%. Huge. And eventually a million dollar mortgage or a $900,000 mortgage at 6%, you know, there's only a finite number of buyers that have the income to qualify for that kind of house. So there's either got to be downward pressure or just not as many houses sell or we're just kind of in a waiting game till rates go down or inflated salaries catch up with inflated interest rates. And it's, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I've been trying to find where's the Venn diagram of high inflation yet still low supply because that hasn't really shifted and still increasing wages, which we're seeing, um, but kind of like everything feels a little top heavy. It's like, if you gave me a hundred grand right now, um, just for you know being a guest on the podcast, of course, I would have no clue where to put it. It's like gold's at an all-time high. Stock market feels a little expensive. Real estate feels a little expensive. You can't put it in cash because inflation's going to eat up your purchasing power. Like if somebody just gave me a free hundred grand, I would have no idea where to deploy it. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough because, um, you know, I, well, out of state. I mean, that was a big thing as far as the the you know people buying properties out of state where uh, it's just less expensive and you know, the costs are lower as far as maintenance and things like that. Um, I've actually been, uh, I've been short selling everything. <laughs> so like today the market was down. I was good. So, yeah. You're like, <laughs> you're like SQQQ or whatever it is that the triple short, the NASDAQ. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, All right. Although man, I've gotten burned on that one too. Like yeah, you and me this both. is kind of, I, I bought my first stock was Atari back when I was a kid oh. and, uh, we, I used to have to watch channel 22. It was like they would have a scroll to see if I could see Atari pop up. Right. And I would call the, I had a custodial account for trading stocks. This was like 82, 84. And uh, I was just a kid. And uh, yeah, I'd call, be on the phone and tell them I wanted to trade this. And then my mom would read the newspaper every day and I'd grab the newspaper and see where my stock was. Do you remember the good old days of all the stock in the newspaper? Oh, yeah. It looked like where it closed. They're all there. Yeah. yeah. That was amazing. So, yeah, that was a long time ago. But anyway, so I've been doing that recently and and discovered short selling. I've never done it before and oh, perfect timing. So you get so. totally rat fucked by 2008 because you have this 
you're building this magazine empire. You've got 16 employees. You got $3 million in revenue. You're, you're doing really well for yourself. And then every phone call that you take for three months takes away revenue. Yeah. Um, so do you wind it down? Is there any assets there to sell? Did uh, you have a printing press that you could sell or something? No, you, like, so I, I technically sold, but not really. I kind of gave the beer magazine to, to the, the guy that came in, uh, Derek. He, uh, he was into beer. I wasn't really, I don't really, I'm not a beer drinker, but it was a good idea for a magazine. Yeah, and people who aren't uh, aren't watching on YouTube were drinking some Chardonnay and eat some fruit <laughs> while I smoke a cigar. This is maybe the weirdest palate trifecta I've had in a long time, but it doesn't taste so bad. So Chardonnay, fruit, and uh, and a Davidoff cigar. Uh, or, you can't gonna, go wrong. I'm so, going to join you on that. Perfect. So you, you, get, you give the magazine basically to your buddy who's actually into beer. That's cool. Yeah, so and he did it digital for a while. And I don't know. I think he's still doing it uh, or some form. And uh, the other two magazines, uh, basically, you know how they talk about what's the saying? If you if you owe if you owe the bank a thousand dollars, they have you by the balls. But if you owe them a lot, you get yeah. them by the balls. Well, so uh, my print bill was pretty high, and uh, so I had actually uh, declared personal bankruptcy. And uh, I think two thousand shoot, it's been a while, like two thousand thirteen, two thousand twelve, and um, yeah, that was rough. That was rough. I never thought, like, you know, I'd be there. But it was humbling, and it was an experience. Like, I had IRS debt, dealt with the IRS. So as far as when I when I talk to clients in the real estate side, there's nothing I haven't seen, like, firsthand. You know, I've been through uh, issues with the IRS. I've been through bankruptcy. I know what they do there. So, like, there's a lot of information that you gather when you live things like that. Right. Uh, you know, that worked out well. I mean, it, it ended up working out okay. And, um, so let's see where were we <laughs> so where do you rebuild? Cause I know then you relaunched a oh, jiu-jitsu magazine. Well, so I had an acquaintance of mine that, uh, this was like 2011 and, um, he had the idea or he thought, Hey, there's no jujitsu magazine. And, uh, he put up the money and started, you know, formed the company and, uh, I ran the jujitsu magazine and then later on I ended up buying it from him. Um, and that was, you know, I was a blue belt, I think, at the time. So for people that don't know any context, it's white belt, you're a beginner, you're just getting smashed. Blue belt, about a year or two in, you actually know a little bit about what you're doing, but you're still getting smashed. And then it's another 10 years become, before you become a black belt. So so you're a, you're a blue belt, you're brand new, and you're like, hey, this is an industry that seems interesting and is underserved because they have no magazine. Yeah, there was one magazine, it was Gracie Mag, and half was Portuguese and half was English. So you'd read an article, you'd read the the paragraph would be in English and then the paragraph would be in Portuguese. So it was really not a good experience for readers. And, uh, so we came up with jujitsu mag and, uh, that was like a, you know, a learning experience. It was in my wheelhouse. As far as the design, I had one of my graphic artists, he ended up laying it out. And, uh, with the, I, I didn't know I was a white belt, blue belt at the time when I was writing these articles. So I just interview the guys and kind of like, transpose what they were saying and then have them look at it and kind of clean it up. And, um, that worked out pretty well. I mean, it grew pretty well. I think our first issue, I had all my, my connections with the new sand companies. And I think our first issue was like 20 or 30,000 copies and, uh, in Walmart, Target, 7-Eleven, all the major stores. And, um, that went pretty well. That was pretty fun because I was into jujitsu and I got to meet like all the all the my heroes, all the legends out there. So like Marcelo Garcia, Eddie Bravo. In fact, I think Eddie was on like the second or third issue. Nice. And we we got a smoker, like a smoke machine, 
and we like just filled the air with <laughs> smoke. And for for those that don't know, what we're talking about Eddie Bravo, big uh, cannabis supporter. Advocate. We'll just put yeah, it that yeah. way. Yeah, and uh, so that was pretty cool. And then um, Andre Galvao, just everybody you can think of has been on our cover. Was on the cover. And so this is something I don't understand, right? Like you don't have like a deep jujitsu background. Is it is it just such a draw, or was it such a draw to be in a magazine? You could just call, you know, Galvao, the the ADCC world champion, and be like, "Hey, we have Jujitsu magazine. We want to put you on the cover. I'll be there with a photographer and to take an interview." And they're just like, "Hell yeah, I want to be on the cover of a magazine." Is it like an is it an ego thing that gets you in the door? Because when you think about when I think about starting anything that has a twenty thousand thing a month widget per month distribution, that seems overwhelming. Like insurmountable so times have changed right so back then actually it wasn't that long ago so I mean, let's say 2014 2015 Inter- seems, seems internet, like a lifetime ago yeah it seems forever but internet was full-blown we had facebook we have instagram all that stuff twitter um yeah when you pick up the phone and you say you want to be on the cover of a magazine or in a magazine it's like yeah sure how cool is that like you know you walk into a an office for some company or some person they don't have like framed tweets, you know, on the wall. They have framed covers of the time they were in Forbes or Rolling Stone or whatever it is. So right. that cachet of the magazine, I don't know if it still exists today. I was in a Barnes and Noble the other day and thinking, man, who's buying magazines? There's like nothing I would buy a magazine for. Yeah. Every time I'm at the airport, I look at like Recoil Magazine as a magazine about guns and uh-huh. prepping and stuff. And I kind of look at it. And then there's like DuPont Registry, which is like all the rich stuff I'll never be able to afford. And then there's a car magazine with something. And I always reach for it. And I'm like, I'm not going to buy a fucking magazine. Like I, I always reach for it because I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. That kind of catches my eye. That's a subject, cars, whatever, guns, whatever that I'm interested in. And then I never buy it. So I think the same, who's buying magazines? But I'm sure if Forbes called you and said, hey, Scott, we need you to, uh, we're doing an expose. Or I would immediately <laughs> lose weight, get my hair cut. I would be like, hell yeah, I exactly. would. Exactly. So, so yeah, the magazines, like in the, in the RC business, I was, uh, in, I went to Finland, I went to Japan, I went all over the world, you know, covering events and meeting all the, you know, the, the high end people in, in that business. And, uh, with beer, you know, I had a beer with Jim Cook, the founder of Samuel Adams. That was pretty cool. Uh, there was this guy, Dogfish Head brewery yeah, yeah it blew up but before like when they first started man i can't think of sam is his name sam and his wife like met them when they just started and and it was a cool vehicle like it got me in, i mean it was i was did my best to express how cool things were to the readers and so they felt like they were you know there with us right um and then in jiu-jitsu just like meeting so like when i first was doing articles with people when i was just beginning it was so far over my head. I was just doing my best job to kind of communicate what they were saying to the reader. Right. And then later on, as, as I got more into it and my skill set improved, I was able to understand things more. So, like, going back, I remember one of the first or second issues, we did an article with Lucas Litch, uh, Check Matt, and um, he did a half guard thing. And out of, let's say, five or six techniques he showed, maybe one of them I, like, really comprehended and then years later, I go back to the article and it's like, oh man, it was like mind blowing. It was like how good the content was yeah. that he was sharing at the time that I didn't appreciate. And later on I did. And um, yeah, it's like if Chris walks up, uh, we had a guy, Jordan uh, Worth in here. He's a, a brown belt at uh, 10th Planet. And if Jordan, if, if Chris had to interview Jordan, Jordan's like, so the first thing you do is you go to Ashigurami, 
Chris will be like, all right, how do you spell Ashi? Like, what, what, what the fuck is that? Right? It's like, I mean, you you were almost at that time translating a different language. Yeah. So, like with the helicopter magazine, I couldn't fly a radio control helicopter. It was like super hand eye coordination, and uh, so I would just interview. Like, I would, I would companies would send me a thousand, two thousand dollars worth of helicopter, and I would give it to one of the guys that I knew at the field, and he'd build it, and I'd take pictures, and. He'd fly it, and I'd ask him how it felt and this and that and translate it into uh, an article. And so did the exact same thing with... So with in all the, these magazines, you obviously had an art director, but you're doing the interviews. You're finding the, the talent or the guests to interview. You're, you're managing the business. Like, you, you were really like a, a, a one-man publisher. So Yes and no. So, like, have you heard that book? What is it? The Six Geniuses? It's like the number one. It's like on the top ten business bestsellers right now it's about six geniuses and okay everybody's got these six geniuses and some are good and some you know you fit and you don't anyway one of my my two are are invention and discernment and uh so inventing like i love to start things so starting the magazines with the the car magazine it was probably like two or three years before i kind of got a team behind it and then they kind of took over it so from the day-to-day as far as like writing stuff i wasn't doing much of that then I started the helicopter magazine, same thing. Like, did that hard work to get it going and then found, like, I, I hired somebody from Oregon and flew him out and he moved down here. It was a real business. So, like, you know, and he became the editor and the publisher or the editor of the magazine. And then he hired a, a team member. So, you know, that was what he was into. That's what he was passionate about. So, uh, on the beer side, I, I would write articles and I would just do a shit ton of research. I uh, like, I'm not a beer drinker, but I can tell you how lager's made. I can tell you where they store it. I can tell you its history. Tell you what's the difference between lager and the ale and the temperatures that they would ferment it at. Or you know, so it was just a lot of knowledge. You know, finding that knowledge, doing that research, uh, and then later on, I didn't do anything of that. The, for the jujitsu magazine, I was pretty involved all the way from the beginning because it was something that I was still like passionate about. When I was in, when I had the the car magazine. Let's see, I started 10 years earlier, and so like three, four years into the RC cars, I'd been doing it for 15 years, and it was like... Yeah, the, I'm out. The fight, yeah, this is the last thing I want to do is hang out at a racetrack. Right. You know, um, so, but with jiu-jitsu, you know, it's kind of one of those things, like, you get so used to it, you don't feel right when you don't do it. So, right. you know, that kind of carried me through with the magazine. Like, it was, it was never boring. It was never, dis- I was never disinterested in it. You know, it's funny, you, you said something when we were at the immersion camp, because I was asking you about, you know, your journey to Black Belt, and like, you know, we're both a little older, and my knees are a little tore up, and I've thought to myself, I'm like, hey, if I really stick with this with 10 years, will I ever be like a real Black Belt? You know, because in my mind, these 30-year-old UFC fighters that we're rolling with at 10th Planet, they're like the real Black Belts, right? Like, they're actually fighting for a living, and you said something that was really good, you're like, oh, I'm recently a Black Belt, and you got to think of Black Belts like vampires. Like, when you first become a Black Belt, you're the little baby vampire who, yeah, you can suck some blood, you can probably fly, you can teleport, but then, you know, you just build all the way up to Dracula where it might as well be a different entity, and there's just, there's there's never-ending progressions of level on Black Belt, and that actually made me feel better because I'm like, all right, cool, I put 10 years into this, I can get good, you know, at 55, I'll be a baby vampire, I'm never gonna be Dracula because I didn't start when I was 12, like some of these, the Rotolo brothers or whatever, starting they were five, and you said that, I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense, like that, that stuck in my mind from one of our conversations at camp this summer true blood true so, blood there you yeah go. that was the show so you had jessica that was like a baby vampire and then you had godfried which was like this thousand year old vampire so it's the same thing so like uh, tournaments 
uh, I'm 48, and um, so I think I'm Masters 4. So I'll go and look to, like, Marcus, my son, he did a tournament not too long ago in San Diego, and I was going to do it. And I looked it up, and uh, I looked at the, the class and the division. There was, like, two or three, like, world champion guys. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? Man, I really, dude, I'm going to be there to support you 100%. We're going to focus on you. I really, I hadn't been training that much, and I'm like, fuck, I don't want to go out there and go up against some dude that's got, like, 10 or, 10 or 12 uh, world championships under his belt. Right. But, um, yeah, no, it's the same thing. Like, you know, it, and black belt, it, it, uh, it's cool because, you know, when you go to open mat, you can kind of like, <laughs> you know, uh, pick who you want to roll with and stuff like that. And I'm not like the type where like, how dare you ask me to roll? Right. Like, I don't give a fuck. You know, let's, I just want to have a good time, not get hurt. Right. So, and as far as age, uh, if anything, you're the higher you get, the less likely you are to be, you know, roll with somebody that's spazzing out, or you know how to like control them. Like the the most dangerous thing is a hundred or two hundred and fifty pound, you know, six foot three white belt, right? Because he could fuck you up, like, right? You know what I mean? And not intentionally, right? But just doing some dumb stuff with your knees in a spot. So that's the beautiful thing about jujitsu and. And it's weird because, like, my dad would always say, like, how could fighters, like, hug after a fight? Like, we'd watch boxing together, and he's like, I'll never get that. Like, don't you want to, like, kill the guy? And in jiu-jitsu, I've learned, no, there's, like, absolute respect. Like, I mean, I'm sure there's times you get pissed off, but for the most part, it's absolute respect. And, you know, if I'm rolling with somebody, if I know they're in a bad spot and they're going to get hurt, like, you know, I'll let them, like, move them out of the way. Um and, uh, you know, with jujitsu, you have that, the, the more you do it, the more you can recognize it. So as far as age, you know, it kind of like that knowledge will come with your age as, as yeah. things are more vulnerable, uh, you'll understand, you know, that you're putting yourself in a spot or your, your partner or your training partner is too. You're way, way, way more likely to throw at your back as a spazzy 35 year old, 25 year old white belt than a 55-year-old black belt because they just kind of know how to move and where to lay and where to position and when to relax. Yeah. And it's a, it's a different game. And it's not to say that they're not dangerous. Like, uh, through the magazine, in fact, this is... I, I'm, I'm a complete fanboy for Jocko, right? Yeah, so, me too. <laughs> so, uh, when, and my daughter's going to give me shit for that because she always makes fun of me for... I've got this uh, get-after-it cup. And I only drink out of it when I've earned it. So, right. like, it, lately, it's with the holidays... Haven't been earning it too much lately, so I haven't drank out of it too often. But, you know, when I, like, crush it at the gym, then I'll, I'll drink out of the cup. Anyway, he, uh, I went down there. It was for an article, and um, I got to roll with him the first time. And I think I, I think I just got my black belt, maybe. And, uh, man, it was like a freight train. Like, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't stop it. And uh, I think he tapped me, like, five times in, like, six or seven minutes. It's always discouraging, right? Yeah, exactly. So as far as, you know, don't let age fool you. Right, right. <laughs> Not that he's, I mean, I think we're the same age. But, um, uh, yeah, so so that's a different thing. And, you know, that's getting back to jiu-jitsu. Like, um, man, I, I've had the pleasure of rolling with, like, some really amazing people. Like, uh, uh, shoot, Jean-Jacques Machado. And, you know, the fact that he doesn't have that hand, don't let that fool you, man, because he will mess you up. Yeah, it's just, it's still crazy to me that one of the best guys in the world in a sport that's, like, so dependent on grips is missing a hand. I mean, it's just, it's just insane. Um, did I tell you about my funny story about uh, Jocko when we worked together? 
No. So to to dispel any myth, I was not a Navy SEAL. I was just like uh, I was I was in the Army prior to 2001, so I never got shot at in anger. But uh, Jocko's first job out of the military, uh, the CEO of the mortgage company I was working for had either invested in his gym or they had invested in some UFC fighters together or something. So um, old old boss of mine, CEO of the mortgage company I worked for, had befriended Jocko and they had this relationship and they had some some financial arrangement. I don't really know. So Jocko gets out of the uh, Navy and wants to get into business. So they put him in charge of like some stupid title, you know, strategic initiative of sales and operations for the mortgage company I was working for. So Jocko comes in and uh, they have this whole like, like straight out of the Charlie Sheen Navy SEAL movie of like they've they've made this trailer for Jocko with some of his pictures interlaced with like the Charlie Sheen Navy SEAL movie and it's way the fuck over the top and it's like it's like Team America fuck yeah you know coming to save the motherfucking day I mean it was so bad it was so bad and so Jocko gets introduced to us as this guy who's going to be our new uh, mortgage like development specialist and I go all of us all the top producers were like. Bro, this this like Neanderthal is scary as shit. Can he even spell mortgage? And like that was a joke. Like, hey Jocko, do you know that like mortgage has a T in it? Of course nobody would say that to his face because he could wreck you and destroy you. But um so so Jocko Willings starts at this mortgage company and he's going around for like six months trying to cure problems in different departments. And at the time, I was one of the few guys that was doing a bunch of jumbo loans. So he comes and you know how he is. He's like super intense. He's sitting in my face, like we're like we're knee to knee. There's not even a table. He's like, All right, all right, Groves. Tell me what's going on with this jumbo department. Like, what's what's working, what's not? And he's, like, furiously taking notes. And I was the most anti-extreme ownership person at that time. I'm like, this person's fucking up. That person's fucking up. This person doesn't do that right. I'm so awesome, you know, because I'm, like, a 32-year-old loan officer that knows everything. And, I mean, it was, like, the exact opposite of extreme ownership. And the cult, I, I strongly believe the culture at that mortgage company the lack of extreme ownership, the finger pointing. I, I would love to get him drunk one day and ask him, you know, because he's, he's not going to insult anybody, but I'd love to just give him some truth serum and be like, be honest, man. That conversation that we had about the mortgage and me not taking extreme ownership and that being the culture of this mortgage company, that's really what started you down the path because shortly after that, he left and started Echelon Front, which ended up becoming the consulting company and writing extreme ownership. And then like three years later, I see him on Business Insider, like Navy SEAL author and business coach, Jocko Willings. And I was like, hey, I know that guy. Um, so one, I, I'm gonna take some small piece of credit that that mortgage company was so fucked up that it helped launch Jocko's career. And second, I remember at that time, so this would have been, I don't know, this would have been 2012, so I'm like 31, 32. We had had a lot of conversation because at the time I owned a little boxing gym that was on the back of my property. We had a bunch of local kids that would come box and pay 10 bucks a month or whatever. And I had invited him over to go boxing a bunch of times and he had invited me to San Diego to try jujitsu. And we just like kept missing each other. And I'm like, dude, that's one strategic friendship that I really missed out on before he became a really big deal. So I like to think that that effed up mortgage company, which doesn't exist anymore, they got absorbed because they could never turn a profit, uh, helped launch his career because of how bad we were. And I always regret like not going down and starting jujitsu 10 years earlier and making friends with him and the boogeyman and everybody else because I was like, oh, that would have been cool to just be along for that ride as they grew into this monster company that they are now. Yeah, everybody that gets into jujitsu later in life, they're like, fuck, I wish I would have learned this 10 years ago. I, yeah. 20 years ago, however long, you know, before. Right. Uh, I think I started in 2009. Let me think. What are we, no, 2007. So, um, 
Yeah, man, I wish I would have done it 10, 20 years before that. Crazy, yeah. right? Like everything else. But, you know, best time to plant a tree was yesterday. Second yeah. best time to plant a tree is today. So if you're thinking about starting anything, start today. Hey, I want to hear a little bit. Um, I want to dive into real estate because now that's been your focus. I know you've had your license since 93, but that's kind of been your sole focus the last couple of years. Um, I want to hear about the distribution of magazines, right? Because when you say we're selling 20,000 copies, and I remember going to buy... Um, uh, you know, it was probably Motor Trend because I loved cars when I was younger. I remember buying a magazine for three bucks or four bucks or something like that. So, you know, is is a hundred percent of the business ad generated revenue, and then you're just selling the book at cost to try to get it out there, or is there actual profit? Because when you talk about oh, we we had national distribution, thirty thousand magazines in Walmart and newsstands and stuff, what what do the economics of that look like? How do they make money? How do you make money? So. It's, it was really, I'm going back. I haven't, I've been out of the business for like six years, five years, six years, something like that. Um, at its peak, it was basically about a 20 or 50, 40% remittance to the publisher for copies sold. Explain that. Really fucked up. So let's say there's a, you print a hundred copies, you distribute a hundred copies. Okay. Let's say you're shooting for a 30% sell through. So 30 copies get sold. Oh, the, wait, wait, wait. So this is the first thing we got to address. If you if you ship out 100 magazines, 70% are ended up in the dumpster and 30% get sold? I, I'm i going back. My memory's not so good. I want right. to say 40% was like, if you were selling 40% sell-through, that was great. For specialty magazines. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if people came out with a Princess Die issue and it sold out, I mean, that's an anomaly. But right. the average consumer magazine, not talking about the biggest players, but, you know, specialty magazines, uh, like, crafting and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, this old house yeah, or, or, or car RC magazines, cars or whatever. Yeah, yeah or, or full-size car magazines. So 40% was kind of like a goal, a sell-through. So 100 copies get shipped out, and let's say 40%, best case scenario, 40% of those sell. And they sell for a buck a piece, right? You get 40 cents comes back to you for those 40. So you printed 100 copies, you sold 40, and you get 40% of that. So it's, a, yeah. It's not so you make a, like 16 bucks. Uh, yeah. And you, well, you had to print, you had to print, distribute those hundred copies. And so that's where the ad dollars, like, again, we're going way back in time. I can't tell you the exact ratio, right. but yeah, you sell as many ads as you possibly can. Subscriptions were always great. So sometimes you would have different subscribe, different publishers would have different subscription models. You'd have people that needed to sell the subscriptions and then you had companies that would sell you'd get an offer in the mail for a buck for a year well they're yeah. just selling the ad dollars or they're right. just selling you know the ad figures um so for us we relied on we were a small publisher so we relied on the subscription income we relied on everything basically so newsstand i remember i did a i did a uh this was a lesson in economics a hard lesson <laughs> so i did a, a promotion in 7-eleven and I think it got us like 25,000 extra copies distributed for that month. Well, I had to pay for 25,000 copies to get printed. Extra. And, how, and how much is it to print a 100-page oh, magazine, 200-page magazine? Dude, you're going way back. Is it like a buck or two? No, not quite that. It was like about 75, 85 cents. Oh, okay, so you can, drive, scale. you can drive printing way down if you're doing massive runs. Yeah, like at the height, I was buying, I was buying um, paper by the rail car. Wait, say again? I would buy paper by the rail car. So if 
it was about 45,000 pounds of paper that I was buying. So like a time. shipping container, you're buying paper in, in not reams, not boxes, not truckloads, a cars. shipping container, a rail car yeah. full of Yeah, and paper. I put it on my American Express. So <laughs> I, had a, I had a ton of points. Do you remember what your biggest charge was for paper? Like, did you drop uh, like 50 Gs on Amex for paper? I, I think, uh, no, I think the most I ever did. Yeah, pretty much 46. It was like, uh, man, my memory, you're testing my memory. I, I definitely charged forty six grand a couple times for on paper, Holy and cow. Uh, and again this is not like this I we st I started from one I launched the magazine with one credit card and I think my limit was like twelve hundred bucks or something like that, and I figured you know what this is I didn't go I went to junior college so right. and uh, I figured well this is my education if if it burns and fails you know that was the cost and uh, but it was a good business for a long time. You know, um, all right. So you ship out a hundred, maybe you sell 40, you get 40 cents per the 40. So you make 16 bucks, but you spent at least triple that on printing. So it really is all ad based. Like if you're not selling ads to, to, you can't even get the copy out. Right. Yeah. Like you had consumer reports that had no advertising and, um, I mean, their subscriptions were really expensive. It, that's a tough model. I don't know how right. they, how they did it. Um, but yeah, the whole the whole business was broken, and and it was really like there was a ton of consolidation in the print business and also in the newsstand business. So you would have territories. It was very my I had different publishing consultants that would deal with you know the circulation side, and um, they'd always describe it as kind of like a mafia thing. Like you had people that had the territories, and they were really set on you know no competition coming in and. Then you had this company called Anderson News that kind of consolidated everything, and they bought all the mom and pop distributors. And and, and where do where do they make their money, right? Because you send out the well, I guess you send out the hundred copies, you sell forty of them, at, and they're making sixty cents a copy. So they made twenty four bucks for doing nothing other than being the middleman. Because you had to pay for the material, the shipping, you had to get everything there. They're yeah. just making sixty cents profit on the magazines you do sell. Yeah, so it was all consignment for them. So they didn't. They were just middleman working on the what got sold. So you would have, let's say, out of that sixty percent, you would have a my distributor Curtis Circulation was my distributor, and I think they would charge like ten or twelve percent. And then the rest would go to the retailer that would sell it and then to the distributor, Anderson News. So you had all these different layers siphoning off that dollar that gets spent at the news. All little taxes on the system. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you were making these RC magazines, I mean, 270 pages seems like a lot, man. Like, what was the, the end user, the hobby shop selling it for to... Uh, like what was the client paying for? Three bucks, five bucks. I, I think we were at four ninety nine. Four ninety nine. Yeah, okay. and it was a. Good, I mean, it was a sizable publication. It was two thirty two was the highest. I think in counts of eight and sixteen and twenty four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just your brain now. Yeah, back then, man, you're bringing back flashbacks. But um, yeah, so so that's how that would work. And um, yeah, as far as ad dollars, you know, every every dollar and it was like i always my dad being in the grocery business he would always tell me well think about it like milk like right milk only is sellable <laughs> until that date right. so every issue was like milk it was gonna go bad if i didn't sell it so you know selling that we would tip to anybody that wants to buy print advertising wait until the absolute last minute to buy that spot so it's called a remnant and uh tim ferris talked about it in the four-hour work week so, yeah, at the end of the month or the end of the cycle, if there's empty space, it's going to go empty. 
you know, if it's better, you know, sell it at a discount and right. get something for it than let it go. Oh, that's interesting, so. man. Uh, so it leads to real estate. And I always joke with my friends that are realtors. I'm like, yeah, every really successful realtor I know failed at one or two other businesses and built a sphere of people who then they realize they can sell houses to. Um, because if you don't have that sphere of influence, you don't make it the first couple of years. Uh, so a couple of years ago, uh, I know you've had your real estate license since 93 and you kind of dabbled in it. You did loans for a couple of years, made great money prior to 2008. What made you decide, uh, I think right before COVID, Hey, you know what? I should just go all in on real estate. Like that makes sense for me. So I think I, I thought about getting back into the business back in 2017. So I, I let my license go actually. So I had it for four years and then I never renewed it. And then, um, did the magazine thing. And then I think 2017, 2016, I think I signed up to take the classes. And as you know, it's, there's not a lot of, it's not a big barrier of entry no. to, to get your real estate no, license. Not at all. So I, I started the courses and then I just blew it off and stuck with the magazines and tried to reinvent the wheel, trying to come up with something that would catch people to make it a viable business. And uh, I did a subscription box for a while, which was pretty cool. I, I bought a couple of different boxes that were out there for jujitsu and put them together and then use the magazine as a vehicle to, to promote it. Um, it's a cool business. In fact, it's still alive today. Um, I brought on a partner and he ended up buying, buying me out and it's called the bjjbox.com. And, uh, so every month you get jujitsu stuff, which is cool if you're into it. Um, and then, uh, I decided, you know, had enough and folded the magazine. The, the last issue was actually, um, my going to Maine for the camp back in 2018, I think. Oh, wow. And um, it's funny. There's another, I'm going to, you wish you would have back then. Right. So I met Pete from Origin when they, f not, well, yeah, when they kind of first started. Yeah, like, Pete, the co-owner of all the stuff with Jocko. They do uh, the boots, the vitamins, the drinks, everything. Yeah, so another thing where the magazine got me entree is, uh, he invited me out there when they opened the factory, the first factory, which was a, basically was a garage or a barn back right. then in, in the woods. And uh, went out there, hung out with Pete, uh, got to meet him, got to meet the crew. Um, and I thought he was nuts. You know, he had all this equipment. Like John was cutting geese with a jigsaw. Like, <laughs> you know, it was crazy. And um, man, and then going back, then I went back for that last issue was me going to the the camp and the grand opening of their 10,000 square foot warehouse and when he was posting pictures of that 10,000 square feet I th I'm thinking he's nuts what are they going to do with all that space 10,000 square feet that's a that's a big yeah building. to make geese which is like such a specialty product yeah and um and oh shoot I'm gonna go down I don't think it's proprietary information so I'll go and talk about it so Pete and I we would talk quite often so we would talk call each other and I send him the blue ocean thought that'd be a perfect book for him. And yeah. sure enough, man, he has built a blue ocean. Um, and so we would talk all the time and, and he saw that I had done an interview with Jocko and he called me a couple weeks after that when it came out and he's like, Hey, what did you think of this Jocko guy? Cause he didn't know anything about him. And I'm like, I oh, super serious guy, really good, you know, real good information. And I guess Jocko had approached him about, he's told the story on Rogan and stuff. Right. Uh, he had, Told, he had um, uh, he had pitched him, you know, the idea of buying into Origin, and I guess Marcus Lemonis was also talking to Pete at the same time, and he's like, I don't know which, you know, what would you do, what, you know, who would you go with? And I'm like, Jocko, he, he he's his audience is more likely to buy geese than 
you know, somebody else with a ton of, you know, bringing a lot to the table, but not as, as unique to what Jocko brings. And, um, yeah. So then, you know, that because of that phone call, because I gave my stamp of approval, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, later on down the road, man, looking back, Oh, this is you're part of, I mean, you're part of the story. It's cool. Well, it's, you know, and I'm the only one that, you know, it's a big deal to me, but I, nobody else cares. Right. Um, but I remember Pete called me like, uh, so Pete bought a company called, um, shoot Q five and it was a supplement company and this guy, Bill ran it super good guy. I knew Bill, he did some stuff in the magazine and we had a real good relationship and, um, Pete bought it from Bill and he asked me if I wanted to be a 10% owner Oh, and it was 10 grand and I could have swung it, but I'm like, I wanted to focus on the magazine and just, you know, really focus on that. I didn't want to, you know, dilute my energy and uh, I was going to be the marketing side, you know, the magazine and, and bring that to the table. Well, that's Jocko fuel, which you and I both know now is, <laughs> is a $20 million business <laughs> at, at least. least. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh. so yeah, that, I so think, when, the, when Jocko, uh, when, when origin or the Jocko supplements or Jocko fuel goes public, just ignore that. Yeah. yeah just yeah, ignore, yeah. just ignore all of that. Okay. Just, yeah. I, I jujitsu's calm me. So yeah. I, you know, Hey, Hey, it happens. Lost opportunities. It happens yeah. from time to time. Um, so, so you decide to get your real estate license and why not also become a broker and open your own business and have your own brand? Cause you know, that's what you do. Yeah. It's in my blood. So, um, when I got back into the business, just, I- just out of curiosity, do you get bored of this stuff and you just got to move on to something else? Cause there's been, we've already told the story five times where it's like, ah, I just gave the business to this guy. I sold it off. Hey, bad timing. It didn't work out. Like, like, should you know about this about yourself now? Like, I'm gonna yeah. grow an I'm gonna grow a real estate empire in seven years. I need to have an exit strategy because I'm gonna get bored, or is it just been weird circumstances each time? No, you know, I don't know. I I guess, yeah, I I don't that like tenacity. That's one of those geniuses in the book. I don't have the tenacity. It's like the bottom on there, and that's like sticking through to the end. Right. So I'm good at starting things. It's like a Seinfeld episode. You're good at holding the rep res- or you're good at taking the reservation. Yeah. Uh. So, I don't know. I'm really into it. I really like it. Um, and it's one of those things where I like to talk a lot. You know, I like to I like to show people how much I know, which is kind of like a know-it-all. Right. Which can be a asshole trait. But if, they're, if your realtor knows what he's talking about, I mean, it makes you feel better. Right. right. So, um, and I've met a lot of really cool people. Like, I've got clients that have, in fact, that first year, actually, he wasn't, so Andrew, you met Andrew and um, my nephew, Dylan. Well, the year before, we brought out Joe, who we called Joe Jitsu. And he had barely done any jiu-jitsu prior to the camp. But I sold him and his wife a house, and we hit it off. And we're like good buddies today. We have a book club with Andrew that we do every Sunday morning. And, nice. You know, so we talk. So I've formed some really good relationships from from uh, real estate that I'm super appreciative of uh, these two Matt and Laura, we just closed today on their sale of their house. And I told them I'd mention them in the podcast. So nice. I'll, I'll clip this and send it to them. Um, I met him at an open house and we hit it off. He, I was wearing Birkenstocks and shorts and the shirt or one of these shirts at an open house. And then the other day I asked him, Hey, can you guys write me like kind of a little, a little recommendation or something. And, 
he pointed out, Matt was impressed in my confidence to wear sandals and shorts and a shirt at an open house. So these are my people. Anyway, so, no, we're friends now. Like, you know, they're super cool. We're going to hang out. And actually, I had them over to my poker night uh, like two weeks ago. Nice. So, but, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. I, I, I like it. I can't remember what the fuck your first question was. That's another no, thing, too, is ADHD runs deep. Yeah, no, so. it, it, we start talking about this stuff, and it's just like the interest in building a real estate hmm. brand, um, it, it, it seems to fit you, right? Like, obviously, from your time in the magazine and publishing and whatnot, you've got to know how to network, right? you got to know how to tell a story. I, I follow your Instagram uh, posts. What's your Instagram, by the way? Bold Agent. Bold Agent. Uh, shameless self-promotion. Um and I actually enjoy it, right? Because you give the real talk. You're like, hey, by the way, <laughs> you're like, here's some shit that's going on with California taxes. Whether you're thinking about coming here because you make so much money you don't care about the taxes or you're thinking about moving because the taxes are kicking your ass, I'd love to be your realtor. And I was like, good for you for calling it like it is because like taxes inform a lot of people's housing decisions. Absolutely. So there's um, people will say, like I'll see realtors on on uh, Instagram or Facebook and they'll talk about NAR's stats and this and that, or there's one keeping current matters that gives you like demo, not demographics, but data, but it's always painted in the best possible light for you wanting to go buy or sell a house. Right. And sometimes it's not always the right time to buy or you, it's not right time to do things. It's different for everybody. Right. And uh, I don't like putting things. I want to be able to stand behind my words. And that was the thing like, so with the magazine, being a publisher and editor in the magazine for 20-something years, everything that I would write in an email or in a letter or anything like that, I would always write it from the standpoint of, can I defend this? Like, am I, you know, I don't want to put anything out there that I can't defend or I can't back up or stand behind. And um, so when I would write an email, I would think, oh, some Reddit, this was before Reddit. This were boards, you know, the message boards. Right. And you know, somebody would be complaining about the magazine and I'd go on there and I'd try to be as professional as possible and like defend whatever was in the magazine. Usually it was like, oh, you said this about this fuel and it doesn't burn to that temperature or whatever. So I was always kind of careful to, you know, stand behind what I say. And, and sometimes people will just throw up stuff there to, you know, get, get attention or, uh, you know, to push people. Like the worst thing I would ever be guilty or the worst thing I would ever want to be accused of is pushing somebody to do something and make a decision. Right. So it's their decision. I'll give them all the information I can possibly come up with. And if I can't, right. like I've got, uh, I've got a pretty good network. Like my, my real estate attorney is a jujitsu guy. And so like, if I have questions that I can't answer or I don't want to practice law, so I'll call him and you know, Ryan shout out to Ryan. Uh, you know, he'll give me the, the skinny on what's going on and I'll yeah. convey that to my clients um, so yeah, it, it is interesting how much there's that trust, right? Like if you trust somebody to, and I, I mean this seriously, if you trust somebody to not snap your neck when you're in a weird compromised position, you definitely have this like, like camaraderie or this, this brotherhood to be like, Hey man, like I, I don't need a whole legal dissertation. Can you just give me the skinny on this real thing? Right. Where a lawyer, especially be like, well, let me dig in and understand the situation. It's like, no, dude, just, just give me, give me the skinny. We trust each other. Whereas like one of the guys at the jujitsu, I mean, I think I know his last name. He's going to come borrow my car, house it and walk my dog and feed my dog when we're out of town next week. Cause we're going on vacation in between Christmas and new year's. 
And uh, and it's like, I, I just know from our interaction at the gym, I can trust this guy to not go through my drawers and like try to steal my, you know, coin jar or whatever. I just, I just know that there's like a trust there. Cause when you have that physicality and it's like, Hey, if I turn this way on accident, I'm going to blow out your knee and vice versa. Cause we're practicing some weird weight leg, leg lock that I don't understand. Like there's just a level of trust there where it's like, of course that person's going to do business with you. Of course, when I need a house sitter, I'm going to trust that person over maybe somebody I've worked with in the past. It's, it's just really strange. It, it's, it's not there. There aren't bad apples. There definitely are. But uh, Rogan's talk about it. It's like a. It, it weeds out people that either their egos are too inflated, and it, if you have a big ego, you see the guy. He comes into jiu-jitsu and uh, he doesn't want to give up anything, and he gets his ass kicked. And you Never can't. Comes back. You can't laugh. Yeah, exactly. If your ego's hurt, you're not going to come back. Yeah, because you're going to get your ass kicked. There's always somebody bigger, badder, better, faster. Yeah, you know, better looking, everything. This, this is funny. The, the other day, um, uh, I go to the morning class, and uh, I haven't normally been going to the morning class. So I go to the morning class, and my buddy Jordan's teaching the class, and we do something. And there's a guy over the corner, clearly was like a X Division One wrestler. Like he's older, right? You can tell he's, he's a little weathered, but he's got like real man strength, some cauliflower ear, square jaw. Looks like he wrestled in Iowa, and I'm like, whatever, dude. Let's let's go dude proceeds like to just throw me around like a fucking rag doll and taps me out about 10 times in a five minute round. And after the class, I go up to Jordan. I'm like, Hey Jordan, can you just tell me that that guy's pretty good or a black belt or something? Or am I just like that much of like a pansy when it comes to jujitsu? He starts laughing. He's like, you don't know who that is. And I'm like, no, he's like, Oh, that's so-and-so he's the, uh, he's the ex, uh, light heavyweight champion in the UFC. And he's probably like a, a, a third degree black belt. I'm like, all right, cool. He's like, yeah, if he wanted to, he wouldn't have tapped you five times or nine times in a five minute round. He would have snapped your back nine times in a five minute round. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Um, uh, appreciate him not injuring me before I had to go sit at a desk for eight hours. But yeah, there's a level of trust where it's like, oh, you know, sure. that, that guy was super humbling or no, he was, he was super, uh, helpful to me in my growth. And he had to humble himself to like basically come down to my level of athleticism and skill so that we could get in. And, you know, he got in a good physical five minutes of cardio as he was whooping my ass. Um, but that I, I haven't seen that level of trust. If you walk into a boxing gym or a CrossFit gym, people are trying to like show how, how much weight they can throw up. There's just there's a weird trust in the jujitsu community, which was not the point of what we were talking about today, but it seems to keep coming up. So before I got into jujitsu, my buddy Aaron and I, we got into Western boxing. And that was kind of like the first, I think I tried like Jeet Kundo after the Bruce Lee movie came out for like a month. <laughs> that was not, it wasn't real. I don't know what it was. Anyway, so before I got into jiu-jitsu, I started Western boxing and um, did that for a while. And my buddy and I, we got into Muay Thai and we found this trainer and we would show up at his house at five in the morning and he'd open the garage and we'd sneak in and warm up. And he wasn't really a morning guy, so it didn't work out too long. And uh, so we went to this gym uh, out in Riverside, and um, the first class, like, I'm first time, not first time, but pretty early on Muay Thai. We never, like, really sparred Muay Thai, just Western. And um, the instructor throws, like, a roundhouse, like, head kick, like, from the start, like, immediately. And I'm like, and all of a sudden, I mean, that can knock you out. Or oh you. yeah. It was, it was a, it was a hard kick. And, um, I sound, <laughs> I sound like a puss anyway, but that's not what you do. Like a first, like a student that's just coming in. I don't know if right. he had to show me that he could do it or what, but it became like 
you know, let's go 50%. And then it becomes 51. 50, and before you know it, you're trying to kill each other. And that's the cool thing about jujitsu. Even if it gets to that level, you're not going to kill each other. Right. You know, but it doesn't get like that too right. often. You know what I mean? And, um, I, when I discovered that was before I discovered jujitsu and then I got into jujitsu and I'm like, oh, thanks. I don't, you know, I don't have to get punched in the face to get that same th competition, you know, thrill. And then, um, about a year or two after starting my school started a, a Muay Thai class. And so I got all my old gear out there and then started sparring the same thing. And I'm like, there's a reason I don't like sparring. <laughs> right. You know, with, with, uh, strikes, but anyway. Getting punched in the head is no fun. So what do you think for the Southern California real estate market? We kind of hinted towards it. Like, you know, we're probably not going to see a massive drop in prices, but there is definitely a recalibration where sellers get it, right? Like they can't get top dollar, no contingencies, all cash, close in seven days. Like it, it seems like the market is, I guess, evening out a little bit, right? Instead of a extreme buyer's market or seller's market or lender's market because the rates are so low, it's like, all right, everybody understands there's like some deal making to be made. What do you, you know, this, for context, we're filming this in December of 2022, probably won't drop till February of 2023, because for one of the first times, we're way ahead of schedule on our podcast. But what do you, what do you see if you're giving somebody advice going into 2023, into the housing market, specifically in Southern California? If you're selling, if you think you want to sell in the next year, do it now. You know, don't, don't wait. Things aren't going to get better. I mean, you're going to have an uptick in, in, you're going to have more buyers coming on the market cyclically, you know, March, you know, when spring kind of starts, but everybody and their brother that's thinking, Oh, I'm going to wait. They're going to put their house on the market at the same time. So if you're thinking of selling, do it now. Don't wait. If you're a buyer, um, if you have a need, like if you really like, I've got people like, uh, sold a condo to this young couple. They've been living with their in-laws for, I don't know how long. And they're, yeah, they have to they have, have a place to, to live. get out. Yeah. Right. So, it's it, they got a good deal. They're happy. They got the rate. They can afford it. You know, if rates come down, hopefully they're in an equity position. Actually, they went in with a fair amount down. That's one thing. Like I'll hear the the term "marry the rate" or yeah, date, marry the date house, the rate, date the marry rate, marry the house. I hate that. It's like you might be stuck with this mortgage forever, dude. Yeah. If if equity if the equity is gone and you can't refinance or yeah. you lose your job, you're screwed. Yeah. So like, or rates just don't go back down. Like yeah. five or six is not bad. Yeah, historically, it could be this way for a while. So, you know, don't count on that. If you're going in with 20% down, you've got that cushion, you know, you're probably going to you probably can date the rate. But if you're not doing that, don't don't plan on that. Nothing is, right. you know, who knows what's going to happen. And, you know, just like there could be some black swan event that, you know, nobody sees coming or, right. you know, some people some we might call them a, a, a nut that they're way out in left field right now, but they could be right. So, right, right. Yeah, there's you know. a lot of people that were way out in left field the last three years that uh, turned out to be totally right. Yeah, yeah. So, so don't, you know, take everything in. Don't poo-poo it immediately. You know, look at it. Uh, it's just like jujitsu. So, you know, take in as much information you can. Like for with jujitsu, there's techniques that don't work for you, but pay attention because somebody might try to use them on you. Right. And you'll want to know how to counter them or, you know, be prepared. So as far as if you're buying, you know, don't go in with a shoestring, like very little down payment. Uh, maybe rent a little longer, you know, wait, work on your credit, build up your bank account. Uh, as far as pricing, I think we're going to see kind of death of a thousand cuts. It's not going to be like instantly there's going to be a decrease, but right. over time we're going to see all these. When I go on the MLS, you know, I look at the hot sheets and I'll look at, you know, price changes. 95%. 
are price decreases. Right. So, you know, longer days on market, um, sellers, if they're motivated and they have a, or they have a strong motivation to move, they're going to accept a lower offer right. or they're going to come up with a price, uh, price decrease. Right. You know, as far as, um, the, like I mentioned earlier, the, the interest rates being so low, if you have a 3% mortgage, man, the value isn't so much the house, it's that mortgage and that payment that you have. So, right. and then you have options of what you can do with the property. Maybe you can lease it out for more than your mortgage payment and have a positive cash position. Right. Like, why would you sell it? You know, um, or some people just don't want to deal with the headaches of being a renter or, you know, being a landlord. Right. So that's going to keep inventory lower than it might otherwise be. Um, but I do think we're going to have people that have their lose their jobs and they're going to be in a position where they have to sell. Yeah. So, yeah, I think about it for myself. Cause like my wife and I are very happy with our house. Um, but it's like, you know, it's kind of track house heaven. We'd prefer to have a pool than not have a pool. We'd prefer to have a bigger backyard, maybe live in a gated community, whatever. But when I look at my mortgage, cause we put a decent amount down and it's like, all right, so I've got like 2.75 or something with no mortgage insurance with our HOA. I'm like 2,500 bucks a month, you know? I could go drive Uber if I had to, to pay my mortgage. If, if, if Amazon mortgage comes out tomorrow with an AI that solves and they take all the mortgage in the country, it's like, well, okay, I'll, I'll coach some people. I'll do some podcast revenue, hopefully. And I'll, um, you know, I'll go drive Uber and I can make my mortgage. But if we move now and we buy a bigger house with a pool in a gated community with an interest rate, that's now double what we could have got, you know, a year ago, I'm just like, eh, we'll make do and take more vacations. You know, and so I, I think to your point, there's going to be way less inventory because what would have been a move up buyer, maybe we'll decide not to move up. And what would have been an empty nester sell and downsize to save money? They're like, well, it's not really a savings. I'll just stay where I'm at. So I, I agree with you that the inventory is going to be a problem and maybe keep prices buoyed a bit so we don't see that huge crash in prices. But death by a, a thousand cuts, right? If your neighbor goes on the market at 890 and you got to sell, you probably go on the market at 880. And then you replicate that multiple times in a neighborhood over a year. And all of a sudden now the going price is 780 where a year ago is 880. So Matt and Laura, I mentioned them earlier. We just closed on their property. We listed it at 720. And I think a week before the house across the street, same model, they listed it at 725. And we had been talking about 720 for a while. And we went under contract. We had a couple offers, went under contract at 707. Closed at 707. That house across the street, it's been on the market, dropped to 710. There's nobody looking at it. it it's going to go under 600, or it's going to go down into the sixes. Yeah. So you got to be ahead of the market as far as listing right now. Right. You know, at or below. And as far as like what I use as far, I don't look at sale comps. I look at what's on the market. How long has it been on the market? Where's the price? Look at what's gone pending. What's gone under contract? Where is it at? Right. You know, and, and sometimes agents, you know, I'll call them up and I try to be as friendly as possible. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to take their business away. I just want to know, hey, can you give me an idea where it's at? They'll tell me or they'll give me a roundabout idea and, you know, get all that intel and and make a wise decision or, or give that to my clients to to make the decision. Isn't it amazing how far a little bit of like nicety goes in this business? It's like there's so many realtors that have either an attitude or an ego or they just don't have the interpersonal skills where it's like. I don't want to use this realtor by name because he's awesome and people will probably be mad, but he'll call listing agents and just through being polite, the listing agent will be like, you know what, man, offer a million, 21,000 and it's going to be yours. I just want to work with you because you're a cool guy. And that's like, 
not so ethical, but he's so fucking polite and he's just well known in the neighborhood of being a good guy and never pulling any shenanigans and not trying to put two deals under contract at once and bait and switch with the down payment and the lender and stuff that's just like people want to work with him because he's nice and he's made a ton of money in the last 10 years because he's nice. Yeah, I always try to do that and far, I, I want them to want to work with me. Right. So it gives my clients an upper hand and, uh, you know, a clean offer. Like, so the magazine business details everything because as soon as somebody gets the magazine, oh, hey, you misspelled this on page 24. Oh, dude, Chris hates it <laughs> when the second he prints like our live event venues for our, um, for our coaching events, he'll go through it. He'll come up to me and he'll be like, dude, I forgot to capitalize this T. I'm like, Chris, nobody except for you gives a shit. And sure enough, once in a blue moon, somebody will come up to me and they'll be like, hey, man, you know there's a typo on page 21? I'm like, three-day coaching experience at a rock star price where you're meeting with some amazing people yeah, and you, you give a shit about the typo on page 21? You didn't capitalize uh, yeah. <laughs> Tuesday. So that's given me a real, like, super attention to detail. And um, when I'll get a contract and everything's left blank and either, either so, like... In California, you have your contingencies and what have you. And, and when people leave the inspection default, the contingency to the default, which is 17 days, it's like, do you not care? Or do you are not paying attention? Like, you, you know, nobody's going to give you 17 days to go through the house. Right. Not, not, I mean, we might be in a buyer's market, but it's not that not, much. Not that much. Right. right. So I don't know if they're not paying attention. And I think, oh, man, this is going to be a headache. And. I'll let my clients know, okay, this, this agent, they had everything together. They were, you know, in fact, this shout out to Albert, uh, you, uh, this agent that was representing the buyers on this one, very professional attention to detail. Everything was, everything was covered. There was no ambiguity in the contract or I'll have escrow like call and say, Hey, who do we, who do we bill for this? Because it wasn't specified in a contract. Right. And, um, yeah, so attention detail is huge and just, be friendly, like make it seem like it's going to be a fun experience. You could be a dick down the road, but if you want to get the offer accepted, like be nice, be friendly, return calls, return, return texts. Yeah. And, I, uh, I had to remind a lot of people the last 10 years when it was just a seller's market. You know, if you think about it from the perspective of the buyer and I'm like, Hey man, the buyer paid a hundred grand over asking. They had four days to inspect the house. They've got the stress of like not being able to have a loan continue. You know, we get 22 days in and everybody's ready to blow up the deal or stab somebody or leave a one-star review. I'm like, the buyer just needs a win. Can we give them 500 bucks somewhere? Be like, all right, we're going to pay 500 bucks to rekey the doors or let me give them a $500 credit and say that it's coming from the realtor or something. Like they just want a win. This is just like human psychology. You know, you get like that old saying, beatings will continue until morale improves. That's what it's been like to be a buyer the last 10 years until about the last 10 months. And I would, I would suggest that to the realtors. I'm like, hey man, we're talking about a million dollar house, couple hundred thousand dollars in net equity going to the client, you know, $30,000 commission checks going to you for, you know, writing a contract. Like, can we just get the buyers a win? And sure enough, man, you give the buyer something like, oh, cool. Thanks. Thanks. We're, we're, we're going to put that towards buying new drapes or something. It's like, this is just basic human psychology of being nice and, and trying to craft a win-win for somebody when, you know, it was hard to do for buyers last 10 years. And now I do feel like there's some buyers 
that the pendulum they think has swung a little too far the other way. They're like, I want a deal. Screw the seller. We're taking everything. And it's like, well, no, the seller's got to get a win too, because they're getting, they're getting rid of their house. Like it's a big deal for people. So it's just, uh, it's just funny. The real estate market is funny. Yeah. You always want both parties to be happy or you don't want to, you don't want to feel like you've been taken advantage of. Right. Cause you might finish through the head through to the deadline but let's say you come up with something that maybe they didn't completely disclose. Right. You're the the first thing you're going to do. If you felt like they took advantage of you and that they you abused you, man, you're going to call your lawyer and you're going to make a stink about it. Right. Where maybe if you felt like everything was perfect and maybe the seller didn't know of something and it was an honest mistake, you know, hey, you might let it slide. So, right. you know, when you when you get everything you want, be careful. Because yeah. you might get you might get something you don't want down right. the road. Hundred percent. So like uh I brought you those jams. Uh Byron is his name. Oh, and yeah. uh by the way, what's he, what's Byron's last name? We're gonna, uh, we're gonna Byron Graham. We gotta give a shout out to Mixed Berry Jam, Aloha Pineapple Jam. This is called Jams. Actually uh, it's uh it's uh fostering jujitsu. Fostering jujitsu is the Instagram and then he's got hashtag jams for jujitsu. So yeah, so him and his wife Britt, they make these jams uh when they make jams and uh, it's all natural and you know, wild blue organic. belt jam. I, I, I'm excited. To dig they're really these. good. And it's for a charity and, and he'll like, he'll help kids that can't afford jujitsu with like ease and stuff like that and help with their tuition. And uh, I just sold his house. He'd been there for 20 years and he's a black belt. Just recently got his black belt. And we were so like aligned with handling the transaction as far as the buyer's you know, they asked for a ton of inspect or credit on, you know, it was a house was built in 1937. So you can imagine there was a few things that needed done. And, um, you know, we were in line and we both, we wanted to give them a win and, and they were happy. He was happy. And it was just in tune uh, with, you know, not. Do, these said, guys, do they make jams for a living? Yeah. So actually he just put an offer on a house in um, Iowa. Council Bluffs, Iowa. So they were living out of a van, like by choice. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Like like vagabond lifestyle, not like living down by the river in a van. He he sold his house and, or they had been going, they've been traveling the country for the last year or so. And uh, they go to these different jujitsu schools and they take their jams and they'll sell them to the the students there. And um, they, uh, he wants to open a jujitsu school. So he found Council Bluffs and he's been texting me every day. Like, hey, what do you think of this? And, they ended up putting an offer on a house that was built like before 1937. Like he must like old houses because right. I think this was like 1910 or something like that. And uh, but it's like on two acres, and uh, he's going to pay cash for it, and he's super happy, and he wants to open a jujitsu school out there. So amazing, shout out man. to Byron and uh, and what and what what uh, they make jams, but this is just combining his passion of like the business and then giving back to the community or yeah. Does he have some crazy story about somebody buying him his first gi or what? No, I I interview this guy. I don't know. Him and I have been rolling together for about 10 years and, and uh, you know, we are always, always, you know, friends. And uh, when he decided to sell his house, he called me up and said, Hey, you want to sell my house? And sure. In fact, I have another listing. That's a jujitsu, a jujitsu guy. So, uh, him and his wife, they're selling, they want to move out. And, uh, so actually the first, <laughs> the first big lease that I did was a commercial building for, um, a jujitsu school. So just, you're talking about your sphere, right? You know, so, and we close, we, they signed the lease 
the day before the president went on air with COVID. <laughs> so, yeah. Ouch. Yeah, the timing was really tough. And but luckily the the owner actually it was a it's a uh, a purchase option, so they're gonna end up buying the building. And uh, but it was the, the the landlord was willing to give them quite an extension on making those payments initially and and uh it, it it all worked out their school has it's a real high visibility sector jiu-jitsu sean roberts and his wife as uh mother laura own it and it's like on a thoroughfare in chino it's nice. like the main street and it's a glass building i mean it's like three three sides are glass amazing and it used to be a furniture store and you can't help but see what's going on inside. So, you know, in the evening when the lights are on, he's got like 50, 60 people out on the mats. And it's just a huge billboard for jiu-jitsu. And uh, their business has grown quite a bit. So What's called Sector Jiu-Jitsu? Sector Jiu-Jitsu awesome. in, uh, in Chino, yeah. Nice. And where are you working out these days? Like, what's your home um, So I got my black belt at Gracie Baja in Chino, okay, uh, Rafael cool. Oliveira. And um, um, I haven't been going there much lately. Marcus has been... After wrestling, he wanted a more like um, competition-focused school, so he's been going to to sector, which is Sean's got a like when they go to tournaments, it's like sixty deep. You know, they have a ton of people that go, and um, so he's been going there and and liking it. And uh, I roll about once a week. You know, do open mats, go to a class every now and then. So I'm old man jujitsu, so or dick jitsu. I do a lot of wrist locks and stuff. <laughs> Shout out to Pete the Greek. Uh, did an article with oh, him. Dude, Pete the Greek. He I was blown up. I was just messaging with him on Instagram the other day to come do a seminar in either Vegas or LA, either one, so I can make it. Don't, and uh, we're going to have him on the podcast, I think. He's awesome. Like, so, but don't be his ookie. Like, don't let him. No. No, dude. No. Trust me. Uh, I can't, shoot, I can't think of the guy's name. We did an interview with Pete um, at uh, Cavalry Chapel Wrestling, which. They had a huge oh, yeah. wrestling. We wrestled against them in high school. Okay. Uh, Highland High School, we wrestled against Calvary Chapel, and it was always always a good match. Yeah, so we Jordan Bell, our last name was Bell. Anyway, he was a Zuki. Man, I was like fearing, like I would tell him, stop, stop. It's good, it's good. We got it, we got the picture. <laughs> and But man, like wrist locks, dude, they're everywhere. So, yeah. and, and I don't, like in training, I don't get them on people, but I'll let them know they're there and they give me an arm. Right. And they'll give me an arm bar. And uh, to that point, uh, we did an article with uh, Josh Barnett. Man, that don't wait. I know, I know the name, but I can't place who he is. So Josh Barnett, uh, they call him the the War Master. He's like big dude. He was in the UFC, did um, a lot of stuff in Japan. Uh, Eric Paulson, he, tra he trained at Eric Paulson. Uh, Eric Paulson's got a school out in uh, Brea or Yorba Linda in that area, and um, so it's catch wrestling. So, like, catch wrestling, man, jiu-jitsu people, pay attention to catch wrestling. It's basically nogi. I mean, right. it's like, it, it's a good, man, there, there's so much stuff in catch that you can use that if it's within the rule set, it's awesome. Right. Like, uh, there's just, um, man, I love him, but Josh got Dean Lister in this choke. I don't know all the Japanese names. People right, throw right. Japanese, like, I don't know what the fuck that means. Right, right. But anyway, it was like a... It was, uh, so you think of side control, you always want that underhook. You know, if you're on top, you want that far side underhook. Well, he didn't have that far side underhook, but he had, he would grab his, his inside thigh and just would wrench back and, 
It could be a neck crank, but not really. It's really a choke uh, or a strangle if you're a, um, you know, what's his name? Uh, Danaher, you know? Yeah. So, um, but anyway, it's catch wrestling, like pure catch wrestling, super effective technique, but so much of that stuff, like that's like the, the a hidden thing. Like Eric Paulson, follow him on Instagram because he posts some old shit that he did back, that was filmed back in the 80s or 90s. And um, man, there's some really good stuff there. That's so, awesome, man. Jiu-jitsu folks look at catch wrestling. So uh, either real estate, jiu-jitsu, magazine, journey, stuff you're looking forward to in 2023. What did I forget to ask you, man? Uh, that's that's a lot. So I don't know. We jumped all over. What are you most looking forward to in 2023? Like obviously your real estate company is taking off BLDG, yeah, short it, for building. Like you're looking to grow that and maybe start hiring people and not just be a sole practitioner. Like what are you, what are you looking forward to in 2023? Yeah, right now I'm a team of one. I've got a transaction coordinator, Mike, that has helped me in the past. He's a good guy. And um, yeah, I want to grow it. Like I'm real picky and I'm kind of a perfectionist. So, which is not really that great. I mean, it's good on some things, but um, you know, I try to put everything aligned before I move forward. Um, so I haven't brought on another agent with the market turning down. I've, I've kind of focused a lot of energy on marketing. So just got some new initiatives planned and, and kind of working on my checklists. And I think you mentioned, uh, the checklist manifesto and a yeah, amazing book, really good book. So I'm like working on my checklists and stuff. I mean, I'm still busy. I got a bunch of listings, got transactions and stuff closing, but, um, you know, it's the holidays right now when we're doing this. So I'm being a little bit lazy as far as making my calls. I bought your book. Thank you. I bought your book and I bought another one for my accountability partner. I sent it to him and then I started, I opened it up and I read the thing about the writing a check out to somebody you don't want to give it to. I, I've, (laughs) that's as far as I've gotten in the book, man. You're like, I can't write the check, dude. I'm scared to write the check. I I don't want to write a check to Hillary Clinton or uh, Gavin Newsom's uh, election yeah. For next year. So I haven't gotten past that first page, but I will. I promise. By the and way, I'm, I'm writing, um, I'm going to write another book. I've been thinking about it forever. So hopefully somebody doesn't beat me to it. Now that I'm going to say it publicly. It's like you and I are kind of the same thing. It's like red dot blue state, right? Like I love California. Um, and there's so much California has to offer, but they've just kind of gone down the, down the rabbit hole of, of swinging the pendulum too far to the left and never like tacking back to the center. So I'm going to write a book called Red Dot Blue State about I like being, a, being a, a conservative. Have you got the domain yet? Uh, yeah, I think I do own it. Are you better? You know, so Chris. Can you, can you check Chris to make sure I still own that? I'm almost positive it's You've owned Daddy. it for years. Okay, cool. So Chris Voss, you know who that is? Yeah, yeah. Never Split never the split Difference. Amazing okay. book. So he went on Jocko's podcast and he talked about his new real estate book that he's got. It's called The Full Fee Agent. So he wrote that with a friend of mine, Steve Scholl, who was my coach for years. Okay, awesome. I just heard him on a podcast. In fact, I'm listening to it. I'm not having finished it yet. So immediately I looked up the domain, the full fee agent and full fee agent. They're both they're both available. Available. So I got them. Oh. So I'm gonna do an Amazon store and <laughs> some people do that. Although then I'm thinking, fuck, what if he like he still has those FBI connections and he figures out it's me. Chris is a cool guy off of his, uh, I've, uh, I've met traffic. Chris a couple times and seen him talk and was on stage with him once, um, just as a volunteer, super, super good guy. Yeah. He'll just negotiate the domain away from you. I was going to say, he, if he, he wants the domain, have him call me. I'm sure we can work out something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. We had, we had, um, a guy on the, uh, on the podcast who basically made legal ecstasy 
and um, he's in a mastermind group with uh, Chris, and they're they're good friends. So we might we might hook up with that connection one time to have Chris on the podcast if he's out here in Vegas. I can oh, sneak that'd him be on. Awesome. Um, awesome. Yeah, he's a big deal now. I should have got him on five years ago when he wasn't such a big deal. Uh, last question, because this is always my favorite question to ask people: favorite movie and why? Oh, jeez, I heard that on the I was on the way out here. I was listening to a podcast. So by far, Risky Business. Oh, such a good movie. And. It had everything. So, like, entrepreneurial, you know, the future enterprisers, they had the memo minder, click it once, memo, memo, and, you know, the whole story. Um, when th- when the magazine business was going really good, I bought a 928, the car that was in there. I bought a GTS. The 928 was the Corvette that had the light, or the uh, Porsche Corvette. The Porsche that had the lights come out of Porsche. the top, right? Porsche. Porsche, sorry. Yeah, was, that had the pop-up headlights. Yeah, it was like it looked like a fish or something. It was yeah, kind of weird so, looking. Yeah, well, they would, actually, they would pop forward. Oh, pop forward. Yeah. So the 928, the 928 GTS, they only imported like 250 of them that final year. And only a few of them were five speed or not five speed. They were uh, manual. And uh, I had one and I sold it. So yeah, I bought it for 40. I sold it for 44. No, I bought it for 44. I sold it for 40. And uh, man, that, that and turning down Pete on the, uh, Yeah, how much is that 928 worth now? Uh, probably that one. It was, I think it had like 36,000 miles on it. I took really good care of it. Man, it probably in auction, bring a trailer you ever go on there. Probably about 130, 140. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. So one of these days I'll, I'll get it back. But uh, yeah, that was a huge regret. All right. So risky business. Hey, what's the movie? Oh, I can't remember the name. It was right before risky business. It's like before Tom Cruise blew up. Where they're like, he's like a kid, and they go to Mexico, and like Shelley Long's in it, and they go to Mexico, and they're gonna get like their dad's upholstery rolled, and they're like, yeah, but you know, in TJ, sometimes they roll the upholstery and put, you know, manure in there. So Tom Cruise as a kid had to like sit there and watch the car the whole time as they're reupholstering. Chris, you gotta look this up. What's the movie with Tom Cruise, Shelley Long, where they like go to Mexico to get this upholstery re rolled, and it's like. It's a, it's kind of a, uh, an '80s version of like American Pie. It's like a coming of age story. Uh, I think Shelley Long's like, what's it called? Losing it. Losing it. Yeah. You go back and watch that if it's been a while because it still holds up. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not bad. Back then, all the movies that I, I tell my kids like things were different back then. Every movie was about getting laid. Oh, hundred percent. Even the movies like my wife's favorite movie is Sixteen Candles. Yeah. Same it's about thing. getting laid. I, I feel like my sister can't have a healthy, normal Howard um, the relation. Duck is about getting laid. Howard the Duck, yes. Also about getting laid. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like my poor sister can't have like a normal, healthy relationship, you know, where there's like some ups and downs with, with, with a significant other because she watched too many of those damn movies. You know, it's like 16 Candles, Ferris Bueller's, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Dirty Dancing, like uh, Say Anything, Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club. It's like, if it's not this picturesque movie relationship, it's like, it's just not real. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so those 80s movies i think ruined a bunch of a bunch of women's expectations of what us men can actually live up to yeah yeah it's rough man i appreciate you being on the podcast yeah, we're thanks gonna, for having me we're really, gonna stick around and talk off the record and have another cigar and really uh, appreciate it we'll have you on anytime you're up here in vegas man cool Sounds all right good talk soon take care